Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. Over the coming year, we'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field, where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. Future Building is proudly sponsored by Building 4.0 CRC. In this episode, I speak with Jonathan Hannam and Julian Kesselman from Taronga Ventures. Taronga Ventures are an Australian-based investment firm specialising in built environment and real estate companies, which they term Realtech. Together, Jonathan and Avi Naidu founded the company in 2015. In 2020, Taronga started Realtech X, which is an incubator or an accelerator for Realtech companies, which is now about to start its third round of funding. Program Director Julian Kesselman joins us to talk more about the program, its intentions and achievements to date. Whether we think of prop tech, contech or real tech, what is clear is that investment in this area has grown rapidly in the last five years and not more so during the COVID period. In this interview, we get a ringside seat into the world of real estate innovation, technology and investment, and some insights into the future trends and challenges in the sector. Just a disclosure here, Taronga Group are a partner in Building 4.0 CRC, which sponsors this podcast. I hope you enjoy our interview. I spoke with Jonathan and Julian in June 2021 from their homes in Sydney. Jonathan and Julian, welcome to the show. Uh, Jonathan, we might start with you. As co-founder, how would you describe uh, what Taronga Ventures does? Thanks, Matthew. So Taronga Ventures is a technology and innovation investor focused on innovation for the built environment. We have a business that consists of three main parts. We have the Real Tech Ventures Fund, an advisory business, and also an innovation program called Real Tech X. So our, our mandate is very clear. We, we invest into globally scalable companies that can enhance the way that real estate is developed, managed, procured, financed. And uh, I guess the, the key differentiator for us is that we are coming to this from the real estate space. So we, we have deep knowledge of the real estate sector and we're looking to make a great change in that sector. So your co-founder, Avi Naidu, um, is it right to say that you both came from the real estate space? Exactly what were your backgrounds? And I guess, how would you say that they came to bear on the shape of the original mission of, of Taronga? Yeah, so Avi's background is, um, he's a, a lawyer and M&A banker background from education and then was working um, in VC. So um, partly in the real estate sector, but also in the more general VC fund. And uh, my background was, uh, I've been, I guess, investing and working in real estate across Asia and Europe, and Middle East uh, for the past 20 years. So it was a really interesting combination where the, um, the skill sets are actually very complementary. What we're doing is we, we're making investments that are VC style investments into companies, but then we're also at the same time helping those companies navigate the real estate world, which is uh, often quite challenging. And so we, we're that conduit that sits in between the two worlds and our skill sets there therefore are quite, quite complementary for this. That sounds like a good, a good mix. So you've mentioned uh, 
obviously Real Tech Ventures Fund, uh, the Real Tech X Growth Program, and Taronga Advisory. Are there any further initiatives that you're planning? Yeah, so uh, we've just announced a major refocusing of the business, which uh, was at our showcase event in in Sydney two weeks ago, where what we've seen is that the real estate sector is really struggling on its journey towards carbon neutrality. So um, we're seeing many of the major global real estate groups have now set targets to be carbon neutral in, let's say, 2024 up to 2050 in some cases. And so uh, what we've said about is a, a refocusing of the business to have an ESG impact. And um, it's a really exciting space because we, we can see that we're not just um, securing investments in the environmental space, but also assisting the corporate world on their social and governance uh, goals as well. And so that, that is, um, we expect that with the current fund, we're already about 60% invested into ESG-related companies. And as we sort of progress with this, we can see that growing to 70 80% as we, as we, we keep investing into new companies. Fantastic. Um, we are going to circle back to Realtek X in a moment uh, and get Julian's thoughts um, and, and details on that a little more. But just starting out here, I'd like to come back to the term did you actually invent the term real tech? Uh, and how would you say it relates to perhaps what's more well known uh, in the sector in the terms of prop tech or construction tech for that matter? Yeah, so when we started in, we were 2015, we, we, we started the business. So there wasn't any prop tech fund or construction tech. It was sort of a new asset class. And what we wanted to make sure we were doing was having a real impact and so the comp this combination of real estate and tech was something that we were talking about. And it, it naturally was shortened to real tech. And uh, we do own the term. Uh, so it is a, a term that we've IP'd. Um, it, is a, it is a space that we see as a globally relevant one. So um, there's a lot of discussion with, with uh, I guess, many of the corporates about how do we not just do something that is having a, a superficial, but having a real impact on their underlying portfolios. And um, it does include a few other aspects. So we, we include data analytics, we include sustainability. Um, IoT is an area that everyone is interested in at the moment, um, but also more broadly, mobility as a, the way we, we move between our assets is also very relevant. Um, so it's that entire sort of ecosystem of the real estate world that we're playing in. Great. I, I didn't know about that because I, I did a little web search and I've noticed that many other companies are referring to real tech now as well. They are. We're, watch, we're watching that. <laughs> I hope they've been paying your royalties. I won't name the big company that I did see who are doing that. So uh, we might uh, see some cease and desist coming out soon. But um, <laughs> moving along... Um, I did check in on this a few years back, but could I ask you now how many ventures you have on your books at the moment and, and whereabouts they are located uh, you know, in Australia or, or globally? So we, we have a global portfolio. We're now, we've completed investments into 18 separate companies. Um, so we're now also doing quite a number of follow-ons into those companies. Um, the, the range of countries, we've got investments in Canada, in the US, in Hong Kong, um, we've got an asset that we're a company we're now completing on in the UK. Um, so we've got businesses out of New Zealand. So it is a global mandate. 
and um, we now have also through the growth program, we've had 22 companies have completed their, their time in the growth program and another 10 will come into our Singapore program later this year. So the ecosystem is expanding quite rapidly. Um, we don't invest into all the companies that come into the growth program, but we have invested into many of them. And um, you know, it, it gives us a very interesting um, way to spend some time with the company as we learn more about them and, and help them on their journey. But the, the eventual goal, I think, will be about 30 companies that we'll have investments into. Um, and, and at the, the June event that I attended in Sydney, you did mention an expansion into Asian markets. Uh, uh, that seems to be fairly well advanced. Are there other plans for expansion beyond that? Yeah, so the Singapore office is now open and we, we actually have had staff in China in the past, but with the COVID period, that sort of slowed down a little bit. Um, Asia is certainly our focus. Um, obviously, now with, uh, we've had two very large Japanese investors come on board in Mitsubishi Corporation and Nomura Real Estate. So we're already talking to them about how we could do greater work in the Japanese market and actually bring some of the technology that we're seeing, seeing globally into Japan. The interesting, I mean, China is such an incredible market. There's opportunities and there's incredible companies that are looking to gradually expand outside of China. So I think that North Asia focus is, is probably the next area of growth. The other area is that we are seeing great traction now from the Middle East. So um, obviously I spent time in Abu Dhabi. Um, there's a lot of I guess, real estate groups in the Middle East that are now looking to drive technology through their portfolios. Um, so we've got active discussions, um, hopefully to have a growth program in Abu Dhabi at some time in the future. Great. That sounds wonderful. Um, diving in a little more deeply, I guess, into the sector, I, I pulled a figure from some of the collateral from your recent event and it states, and I quote, uh, venture capital investment in real estate technology has grown 18 times to approximately 32 billion US since 2015. Uh, does that statement feel like vindication to you both uh, and the reasons that you, uh, Jonathan, started the company and Julian perhaps joined the company? Yeah, so I think in 2015, we, we could see the opportunity in this space and it was so attractive. You know, both Harvey and I left quite decent roles to actually create the company it was it was clear that the real estate sector itself had been slow to innovate and at the same time we were starting to see the emergence of very interesting companies that would now target the real estate sector um, the scale of that so um, in 2016 we published a report with KPMG um, we actually thought it would be about a 20 billion dollar industry by 2020 um, it exceeded that. So it, it moved a lot faster than we thought. It, it hit sort of 20 billion by around 2019. And since then, we've seen, in, especially in the US, there's been a number of um, entities called SPACs, SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, where there's been just an incredible amount of new capital coming into the space. Um, what that means for us is that there is a far greater pool of capital that will eventually acquire some of the businesses that we've already invested into. So it, it becomes quite fulfilling. And uh, it's not a vindication of, of our work. I think there's 
the market opportunity was just so great. And, you know, even five, six years into this, there's so much low hanging fruit within every organization where we can improve processes, we can, we can work on safety, we can work on um, you know, the sustainability of the environment, that there is so much that can still be done and technology is actually now targeting that space. So I, I expect that to continue at this rate for some time. And uh, although I, I don't come from a finance background and I don't claim to understand SPACs, uh, certainly not to the level of detail that you both would, Am I right to say that the growth of these special funds has also been a function of COVID to some degree? Um, I, I'm not sure if it's COVID related. So the COVID period has seen a rapid um, the change in the market because of digitalization needing to happen or, or processes needing to occur without too many people being involved. Um, that certainly has been... Um, enhanced during this COVID period. But I think the, the SPACs, have, they have been around for some time and it's just there's been a couple of you know, quite big acquisitions and we've seen some of the biggest sponsors, groups like CBRE, Tish and Spire, the biggest real estate players globally also now have their own acquisition company that, they're, that they've launched that are acquiring businesses. So it's sort of, um, it's a part of the maturity I guess, of, of the space. Okay. And, and more generally speaking, though, um, a, a common theme, obviously, in some of the interviews I've done over the last year has been around the impact of COVID. Do you, would you say that COVID has been a net um, accelerant uh, to this space, an investment in this space, or has it remained stable or, or, or declined? It, it absolutely has been an accelerant. I think the there's been a couple of parts to this. So uh, for many corporates, there has been a complete change to their business operating model. Imagine if you're a retail mall developer and owner, and there's suddenly no customers, um, and you haven't necessarily fixed or, or started your, your online journey. Um, it's, it's meant that you've had to make decisions in, in a space that potentially you, you weren't comfortable to make prior to COVID. Um, for commercial developers, the advent of work from home and the impact on, on our cities has meant that developers have had to rethink what they're offering as a, as a customer solution. Um, you know, does space become a service rather than a 10-year lease term? So um, what we see is that decision-making has been accelerated in many of the the larger corporates during this process. So they're actually, they're moving ahead of the curve. They realize that technology and innovation can be a differentiator and therefore they actually need to start making decisions in that space. Um, probably the most fascinating thing for us is that um, the discussions that we're having with investors has moved to a strategic level. So how can our fund support the strategic aspirations of a major real estate group? Um, it becomes almost a, a part of their, their uh, suite of, of uh, I guess, armory to, to protect and enhance their current portfolio. So it's, um, it has completely accelerated during this period. Wonderful. That's, that's, a, that's a very good analysis. Thanks for that. Uh, just a, a quick uh, one on competition, I guess, is 
Do, do you see yourself as having competitors uh, in Australia or internationally? Any any um, groups um, uh, sort of stand out from the pile, perhaps that that you that you see self competing with, or not at all? It's a really interesting question. So, coming from the real estate sector, you're often competing head to head with. You know, in, in the Australian context, it might be a, a Dexus versus a, an ISPT on an asset, or um, you know, a Mervac versus Stockland on a on a residential deal. In in the VC world, we tend to collaborate with many of the groups that um, you know from the external side. People might see, oh, that that's a North American competitor. Um, we've just done quite a major investment with one of the US funds. We've got co-investments with many of the European funds. Um, we have investors that have actually invested into, you know, they've selected us as their Asian fund. They've got a, a, a fund in the US and a fund in Europe. So the competition, it, it's, it's not for capital and it's not really for opportunities because they're shared. I, I think the, the key challenge we face is in some cases um, the internal I guess, lack of decision-making in, in some of the corporates. So it isn't, there's not an external um, fund that we would compete with. Um, certainly Asian market, there's no other fund like us. There's no fund that has um, a real estate pedigree combined with the M&A skills of, of Avi and um, backed by institutional capital. So it, it's, it, it's not, there's no, no real competitor in that space. Thanks, Jonathan. We might turn to the Real Tech X growth program uh, now. And Julian, firstly, I have to say congratulations to you on pulling off a, a wonderful event recently in, in June in Sydney, uh, obviously in the middle of a pandemic. So congratulations on that. That's no small feat. I just wanted to ask, I guess, if you could describe a bit more generally how Real Tech X works and, and what some of its goals are. Happy to, and, and I do hope you enjoyed the uh, the novelty of a face to face event. It's been challenging launching Real Tech X uh, in twenty twenty into the eye of the pandemic, um, but we certainly take the opportunity to get together in person uh, when we can, and uh, and consider it a real privilege. So, Real Tech X is a complement to the Real Tech Ventures Fund uh, within Taronga Ventures. The way that I like to explain it is the fund provides our portfolio companies with capital first and then with custom introductions. RealtechX flips that and provides the companies that come through the program with customer access in the first instance and then the opportunity to get investment from the fund. What we do is bring together a set of emerging technology companies on one side of the program and then on the other side of the program, uh, a set of corporates that have each become partners and sponsors to the program and are looking for pilot opportunities with these technology businesses. So for instance, in Australia, we had uh, Dexus, ISPT, CBRE, Australian Unity, CoreLogic and International Towers as partners. And in our upcoming program in Singapore, uh, we have Mitsubishi Corporation, Nomura Real Estate, PGIM Real Estate, uh, Capital Lands Innovation Lab at, and Verizon. And so each of these corporates uh, are looking to set up either pilots or broader implementations with uh, with the technology businesses that come through RealtechX. And the core function of what we do is facilitate those engagements. 
Wonderful. That sounds, uh, I, I didn't know the detail uh, about the up, upcoming uh, Singapore program. So that, that's wonderful to hear. That sounds uh, like it's going straight to the top with a bullet, as they say. As, as Jonathan mentioned before, you've, you've had 22 companies, if I'm not mistaken, through uh, the program already. Uh, what kind of companies do you attract and, and I guess how do you select them and, and how, how many applications actually, if I might be so bold, do you receive? Yeah, happy to share that detail. So across uh, the two Australian programs that we've run uh, and the upcoming Singapore program, uh, we've received almost 500 applications. So it's a, uh, a pretty robust review process to get down to uh, a short list of companies that we actually bring through the program uh, and engage with our corporate partners. So in terms of the types of companies that we attract, they all sit within the real tech mandate that Jonathan explained before, which includes construction tech, it includes the operations phase of the asset, uh, but also includes things like energy, uh, mobility and infrastructure as well. And the way that we select them, we, we, we go through many of them are actually uh, known companies to us through our fund activities. Uh, and, and, and we kind of score the companies based on how ready are they to engage with uh, institutional uh, or enterprise level clients, like the partners that we have. And then this is the, the unique thing about the program. We actually take a short list of companies to each of our corporate partners and pitch on their behalf. Uh, and, and, and then we effectively get indications from each of the corporate partners on which of the technology businesses would they be interested to work with. And, and so across five corporate partners, we'll get a set of preferences aggregate those up and then bring in those companies uh, that are most likely to get traction so that there's multiple shots on goal, both for the technology businesses as well as the corporate partners. That's fantastic. The, that is indeed a very broad remit. And, and I think we saw some of that uh, in Sydney recently. Could I ask you to perhaps pull a couple out from the pile uh, Julian, or as many as you like, and, and just give us a bit of an overview about what what companies you, you, you've you had in the recent uh, program and, and what, what that they are trying to do, perhaps re-invoking uh, the pitch that you must have done at some stage to your, uh, your investors and your corporates. Sure. It's really difficult to, to select uh, just a few um, because we're proud of all the companies that have come through the program. So what I might do is point to a couple from this year's cohort that speaks specifically to our ESG impact focus that uh, the, you know, the program will be um, driving at over the coming years. So one company that we brought in uh, was a company called SpaceCube. And so what SpaceCube do, uh, they provide uh, temporary infrastructure uh, for, for various different use cases. So uh, not, not simply a, a classic demountable uh, as many of the Australian listeners would have um, perhaps studied in when, when there were kids at school uh, and certainly not uh, a shipping container structure. They provide very, very high spec modular infrastructure that can be deployed rapidly uh, to, to provide um, temporary uh, either accommodation or temporary uh, utility, uh, depending on what the use case is. So to, to bring that to light, uh, the, uh, the company uh, was approached by Monash uh, Hospital during the early days of the pandemic to build a COVID facility 
that would provide additional capacity uh, with the expected increase in patients. And so they scoped this project out uh, with the hospital over about a week, but they built uh, a two-story, uh, I think, 10-room facility in just 16 hours. And that facility was uh, yeah, erected rapidly uh, and with such high specification that they're actually able to seal off the rooms and create negative pressure uh, to be able to control the air environment internally. Um, and so from a sustainability perspective, what's incredible is that all of that facility, uh, the actual bones of the facility are reusable and it's since been deployed to build another medical facility elsewhere. That's great. So that's SpaceCube. I might uh, just touch on uh, perhaps one more. Uh, so Valen Energy uh, is, is a pretty um, simple to concept, conceptualize uh, piece of infrastructure, um, but one that has lots and lots of use cases. So it's a, a vertical solar pole that uh, you can simply bolt into the ground uh, in any open public space, uh, and it will start generating electricity uh, from the solar panels on the outside. So what it does is does away with the need for, for trenching and connecting to the grid. Uh, you simply wheel it into place, bolt it into the ground. It will start producing energy that gets stored within batteries within the pole. And then that energy can be used uh, for multiple different use cases. So uh, in the simplest instance, that would be lighting for uh, a public park or, or a thoroughfare. Uh, CCTV cameras for additional security and, and monitoring, uh, but then also uh, more advanced applications like Wi-Fi repeaters and different Internet of Things sensors to be able to provide uh, better coverage and monitoring of public spaces. So that's a great example of, um, of a environmentally uh, sound um, a piece of infrastructure, both from uh, ground disturbance as well as electricity generation that then provides great social use. Um, from lighting to security to to, um, to other features. Well, thanks, Julian. The the of the ten companies that were previewed there, uh, it's interesting, and perhaps this is a segue to my uh, next question. It's interesting you've chosen two companies out of those ten that are actually focused on on products, I guess, and um, uh, hardware, if you like. Uh, I guess the next question might partly be related to them, but also to some of the other companies that I saw that night that are focused on uh, process improvements and data analytics and the use of AI in, in, in those processes. Um, as we all know, and, and this is something I struggle with in our work as well, the, the building industry is big and it's complex and there's a lot of tradition. It can be hard at times to shake that business as usual uh, mindset. And obviously, I've written about this, but there's been numerous attempts over the years to innovate. Uh, and I think if, if we look at some of the, the big attempts to do this, and we've seen one recently in the shape of Katera that's kind of busted, generally, uh, some of these uh, large format attempts to innovate in, in building, property, construction, real estate can tend to fall flat. And for me, this raises a paradox of sorts, which is what is the right scale of innovation? Uh, on the one hand, if a venture is too big, it can collapse quite heavily and dramatically like Katera. And, and if it's too small, perhaps it just sits in another 
as another point solution, you might say, in, in a rather burgeoning tech stack in, in, the, uh, in the companies that operate the built environment. I'd like to get both of your views, I, I suppose, on, on what you think the right scale of innovation is and, and what should companies aim for? And does that have an impact perhaps on some of the companies that you select from that 500 into your program? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And I think really goes to the enormity of change that's required in the sector. Um, and, and I'm sure Matthew, that's something you, you must speak about a lot within the CRC. How do you select which research projects are, are gonna provide the greatest transformation over um, the, the CRC's life cycle? Um, I think, you know, it comes down to the question of, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, you know, to, to my mind, uh, one bite at a time, um, Katera is receiving a lot of um, uh, focus in the press and the media at the moment about why it collapsed. And, you know, that there's, um, there's been, um, I guess, a lot of parallels drawn between other SoftBank investments um, that have been highly capitalized uh, and are going for, for a wholesale change of, of a sector. And, um, and, and we think that that level of transformation is probably simply just too large for, for any one company to take on, uh, particularly when you're working so far across the value chain uh, and such a fragmented value chain like uh, construction as Katera was. So, you know, what, what we think um, is happening is that there are a lot of point solutions that are emerging uh, and solving meaningful problems uh, in, in impactful ways. Um, where we're at um, from a maturity curve for real tech is that, um, yes, there has been a lot of these point solutions bubble up um, and, and we're seeing industry uh, pick and choose those that are creating the greatest, uh, greatest impact. And so um, what we anticipate is going to happen over the coming years is there will be consolidation. We're already seeing that within some of our technology businesses uh, that are taking uh, smaller startups uh, that, are, that are addressing just point solutions and aggregating those into their platform. So it's no longer a stitched together um, product stack, uh, but in fact, that, that they, they all get aggregated up. So, um, so, so we think that it's really a question of, you know, where are we at the, the maturity cycle for innovation for real estate technology? Uh, and, and, and we're still quite early on the whole. Um, what you will see over the coming years is more of that consolidation um, and more of the, 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 the solutions that will be ultimately leaders in the space uh, really come to the fore. And maybe I can build on that too, Matthew. Jonathan, most certainly. Yeah, so I think the, the key part here is that innovation is really hard. And for the major corporates, they're just not equipped to actually do this internally. Um, so you know, the examples of Katera and you know, some of the, you know, we can look at WeWork and say it's a spectacular failure, but WeWork is also an $8 billion business now, which is you know, pretty substantial. Um, it just wasn't a $40 billion business. So, um, I think the, the way our model is differentiated here is that we are now backed by about a trillion dollars worth of underlying real estate assets. So if you take all the investors that we've managed to secure, their real estate can actually, you know, we, can, we can grow these businesses we're investing into, into a global portfolio that can scale. 
And it, it means that we, we don't necessarily have to select the best outcome or the best company in a certain space. But if we're backing one, just through the nature of having you know, a huge pool of customers, that product will be you know, so much, you know, it will be scalable, it'll be dramatically able to win market share as, as, it, as it grows. Um, and and you, I think the, where this goes to is that there will be you know, smaller, middle-sized companies and larger-scale companies in the space, and they will be, they'll be very active, um, actively trying to change the way real estate's operated. You, you both raise a really fascinating point, I think, that touches on exactly what we could or should all be doing if we're interested in innovating, and, and I really like the one bite at a time. I just wonder if you think the impact of, of the flatlining of Katera will be uh, to discredit such holistic kinds of approaches in the future, or do you think that investors that you're familiar with or corporates that you're familiar with will see that as just a ill-timed, poorly run, structurally deficient venture? What, what, what do you think about that? So I think it's um, you know, across all businesses, there are failures, right? So um, right, there's many hundreds or many thousands of very successful businesses and, and along the way, some fail. So I think you know, we can look at it and say from the outside that you know, there was too much capital and it, it tried to grow too quickly. Um, you know, that can be pointed at, at many other companies. Yeah, yeah. We might move to towards the end now. I, I want to sort of wrap up with some um, kind of future-looking questions, I suppose. I think you both have very well. You both have a very privileged uh, vantage point in the market, and I think you've already outlined these to some degree. And I might recap on these, but I am interested to to hear from you both what you see as the major currents that will affect investment in the real tech space in the next five years. And you've mentioned, for example, already ESG and impact around that, uh, data analytics, IoT, mobility, uh, simple things like improving the dire processes that we see, uh, improving the safety record. Are there other uh, larger trends that you see or, or any other smaller trends even um, that are going to have an impact in the next five years? Our, our model is built around having extensive understanding of the challenges that our investors are facing. Um, we call it a dynamic, it's, a, it's actually a dynamic model because it, it does change dramatically um, based on the, the key issues that, that a, you know, a DEXIS is facing, for example. So um, there's a couple of core themes that we're currently focused on. Um, we've touched on the sustainability. A, a very big one now is asset flexibility. And so how do we make our assets more adaptable and able to be more attractive to a consumer that is completely requiring on-demand services? And that's, that's one that our planning, you know, planning industry needs to think about more because we, we, we won't be able to have a commercial asset that is 100% commercial going forward. It will need to have a component of residential potentially or hotel, um, this sort of mixed use within a, an asset and the creation of you know, a greater level of flexibility within precincts. Um, we've touched also on the digital construction, which is a big theme. Um, and what we're seeing across Asia is that many of the cities 
are looking to differentiate themselves by being perceived as a smart city. Um, so we're seeing numerous Chinese cities competing as the smartest city in China. Um, cities in, in South Korea, um, in Tokyo, we're seeing um, developments that are being marketed based on their, you know, their, their infrastructure and, and uh, being the, the most um, the smartest city in, in, you know, outside of Tokyo, for example. Um, there's also, um, as a sort of broad theme, um, infrastructure has has also got to change. You know, we we've seen plans that are based, you know, for you know, future highways and freeways. Um, you know, at what point do we start looking at on-demand public transport that doesn't follow a fixed rail? Um, it, it's a, it's available now. Um, we don't need to disrupt our cities by you know building extensive um you know 18 19th century technology tram lines um when we can actually put an on-demand service that would actually be better used so i think there's some really big themes that that the the cities will will be facing jk anything to add yeah so so jonathan mentioned how our model was driven by the needs of industry and the, the problem areas i'd probably also extend that to say um that the biggest thing that's going to drive change in the next five years uh, is attitudes and capability towards technology and innovation adoption. The technology is all there. Uh, that there's, there's no lack of uh, exciting um, and impactful technologies to, to bring to the sector. Uh, we see that the major friction point is about uh, uh, preparedness uh, and willingness to uh, invest into the implementation of these technologies. Uh, that um, will be the biggest change over the next five years. We feel very privileged to work with a set of investors and partners that are taking this change seriously, uh, are appointing executives to lead innovation, technology and information change processes and investing in the right capabilities within their organizations and indeed in their supply chains to be able to uh, make this change happen. So there's one uh, area that I think is going to drive the greatest change. Uh, it's around the mindset and willingness to engage with uh, with real tech. I completely agree with you. I think this is if we can change the attitudes uh, in the industry, we'll, we'll have, uh, as the Germans would say, paid half the rent. Um, just moving to my, my, my final uh, wrap-up question, and, and perhaps this comes back to some degree to the discussion we had before about one bite at a time. And and your suggestion around consolidation that will happen. But I have asked a lot of our guests in recent times about the role that they think uh, big tech uh, could play in the future of the, the building industry or the built environment. Uh, and I'd like to sort of pop you guys the same questions in a sense. And I suppose the first question would be, do you think that big tech will enter this market at some point in a meaningful way? Uh, and what, what role could that play? Uh, so we might start with that one. So um, a really interesting question. So uh, I actually take this one back to by big tech you mean the the, the Amazons or the yeah the big big four or however many we're at at the moment five or six perhaps yeah yeah. So what we see is the biggest competitor to a traditional real estate company is the technology companies. And um, we've seen it in China. We've seen uh, Alibaba used to have joint ventures with many of the developers. 
And then the developers realized that Alibaba had more information about the, the shopper than they ever could. Um, we've used the example of, of International Towers that has a fairly good system of understanding the tenants and the customers that are in the space, but can never approach the understanding of a Facebook, for example, mm -hmm. of who is in the, the buildings at, at any one time. So um, the big tech groups all are looking at the real estate space. They all have had various announcements about um, Amazon has had real estate in its eyes for many years. So it's just a matter of time. And I think that the um, just based on the information that they have, they are much better placed to actually develop assets in many cases um, than some of our more traditional developers, because they'll have that deep understanding of what the customer actually wants. Um, that might mean that they do joint ventures to begin with, um, but they're also, you know, Microsoft has huge numbers of buildings across the globe. So they, um, they are you know, building campuses, they understand who should be in those campuses. Um, an extension of that into real estate is, is something that's quite conceivable. And so if, if that's an inevitable uh, force um, in the short or medium term, then uh, following your line around consolidation, the role then of these medium or small players uh, is to develop up their solutions and then eventually possibly be acquired by these larger centralized uh, approaches? Is, do I understand that correctly? So I think the role of the emerging technology companies that we're largely investing into is to actually support the real estate sector in its fight back. If, an, if a, you know, a major developer can now start to understand more and more about its consumer through um, you know, quality data and analytics of, of, of uh, occupiers and also visitors, then they can actually make better decisions with regard to what should be offered. So um, you know, this is, um, you know, the world has dramatically changed and technology and innovation is available. Um, you know, to some extent, many of the corporate groups have now started that journey, but they need to be doing more. Um, I would expect to see many of these groups have innovation, um, either board members or technologists as a part of their executive teams very quickly because they need that to help them on that journey. Um, and it's, you know, it is, it's happening much faster than anyone expects. Yeah, that's interesting, and and I we might end on that view. I, I think that is a very um, interesting arrangement of uh, the field, if you like. Uh, although you see it as inevitable that some of these large technology companies are going to enter the market in a very forceful way, rather than being an inevitable centralization, it will be much more a battlefield with a series of skirmishes uh, and, uh, and a tug of war of sorts. So I really look forward to seeing how that plays out over the next five or 10 years. Um, on that happy note. <laughs> yeah, on that, on that happy note, nothing like a battleground. Um, uh, many thanks for your time today, Jonathan and Julian. It was an absolute pleasure to have you and, and to get some of the insights into what you've been doing. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. And as always, for our listeners, uh, notes and references will be added online to the show notes. And I'd like to thank you all for listening. And until next time, goodbye.